This is one of those sermons that when I started it, I knew I didn't want to do it. See, because whenever I'm working on a sermon, God always has a little fun with me during the week, kind of along the lines of, well, if you're going to talk about this, let's make sure we work on it this week. And I'll explain in a minute why I didn't want to touch this sermon, but unfortunately I couldn't ignore it. But do you consider yourself an optimist or a pessimist? Now, if I would answer that question before I started this, I would say, ha, I'm neither, I'm a realist. I'll explain what a realist really is, but I think all of us have a potential within us to view things pessimistically. We can take a situation and find the worst in it as opposed to the best. Today we're going to look at a story in the life of Jacob, not focused on Jacob, but focused on something Jacob did that caused another person to look at things pessimistically and see what we can learn from it. I'm reading a book this week. Um, I won't tell you the name of it because before I recommend it, I've got to finish the second half of it, but it's really good in the first half. And in this book, there's a, a, a story of a dad whose son, uh, a dad and a son are in a horrible car wreck. And the son has a uh, break in his neck. And he's in the hospital. He's in the ICU. They don't expect him to live uh, at all. And they have just had a, a fourth child. So you've got a six, four, two, and a, a two-day-old child when this event happens. And the father and the mother are, are with their oldest son at the um, ICU in, in Columbus, Ohio. And they're taking turns watching the other kids. And one night, the dad's at the house with the kids. And a nice storm hits. And the power goes out. And he goes, oh my goodness. So he takes the kids and they drive before the roads get too bad to his sister's house. He goes back the next morning and there's just destruction all along the way. And when he gets to the house, he notices one of these huge trees is down right through the house. So this guy has a, a six-year-old, not expected to live. He's got a, a family discombobulated dealing with it. He's got no electricity in his house and he has a tree that just fell through the roof of his house. Optimist or a pessimist? What's going on in this man's life? Well, his dad called him up. And his dad said, this is awesome news. What do you mean it's awesome news? Well, this ice storm came and it knocked out the power. If it didn't knock out the power, you could have been in the house and the tree would have come down on top of you. But praise God, the power got knocked out. And then you got out of the house and a tree came down. And guess what? You need to fix the roof anyway and now insurance is going to cover it. And a bunch of other stuff in the house gets worked on, too. How awesome is that? Plus, you guys aren't home that much now because you're back and forth from the hospital and other people's houses. It's a perfect time for this to happen. It's an optimist view. I might have looked at it a little bit pessimistically like this. I sat down to work on this sermon. Put my Bible here. Turned on my computer there. I sent my two oldest sons upstairs to read, and the one sitting in the stroller was sound asleep. It's going to get to work. And I went to check email real quickly, and it took 15 minutes because the computer is giving me fits. Finally got through that. Then I had to renew a subscription uh, service that I subscribed to. That's a little redundant, no? And that took 10 minutes and never even got done. So I'm 25 minutes into my hour that these guys are upstairs, and I'm starting to lose it because the UPS truck's coming around the block, and he's going to come, and the dog's going to bark, and the dog barks, and the baby starts crying, and the baby starts crying, and the kids come downstairs, and I get nothing done, and we have gymnastics tonight. And we're going to get back late from gymnastics, and I'm going to get kids in bed, and i got to prep for school the next day, and then I'm going to sit down and have to work on my sermon. And wow, did you see how fast that went? Into a simple little pessimistic view. That's how I started my preparation for this sermon this week. So you can see why I might not want to have done it. But today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 42. And if you remember last week, we looked at uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. 
Joseph had two children. Talk about what we need to remember and what we need to forget. Well, after, we, after that event, we looked at the, the naming of the kids, the famine started. And during this famine, there was a family. They got really hungry, and that was Joseph's family, Jacob and the kids. And Jacob sent the kids out to Egypt to get some food. And the kids bowed down before their brother, who they didn't know was their brother. Remember a dream way back earlier on in the life? Came true just as Joseph talked about. And Joseph didn't tell him who he was, but he called him spies. And he said, because you're spies and have come to spy out the land, you're going to have to leave somebody with me and go back. And I want to see you bring your youngest brother to prove to me that you're really not spies. So he keeps Simeon in prison, and he sends the other brothers back with their sacks full of food. And also something else, their money is put in their sacks too. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 42 in verse 35. And it says, As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, that's Jacob's name, said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. And I will be a pledge of, this, of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags, and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. When I read that this week, several times, I couldn't help but notice how pessimistic Jacob really was. Now you know who Jacob was? He had a dad named Isaac and a grandpa named Abraham. He was kind of an important, well-known guy who had some interaction with God. Uh, his name was Israel because there was this little episode where he had a wrestling match and God touched his hip. Israel was a guy, Jacob was a guy who saw God work deliberately and directly in and through his life. He was not a person who doubted whether God was real or if God would take care of him. He knew God. But yet he was a pessimistic man. 
If you look back at 42, chapter 42, verse 36, it says, And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. Well, actually, Jacob wasn't not no more. Simeon wasn't not no more. I know that's not grammatically correct. And Benjamin wouldn't be not no more. But he had a pessimistic view. You go a little bit further ahead. You see, uh, you see in verse 38, If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. If something happens to Benjamin, I'm going to die. Mm, really? Why do you say that, Jacob? You look down to verse 6 and he says, Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? See, it was just negative pessimism. But Jacob made a little bit of a turn. When you look at verse 11, he says, All right, if it must be so, then go and take some stuff. Take, take this bomb and this honey and this gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Kind of positive, right? He's kind of making a positive increase. But then if you're a little further, and as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. He's a negative guy. You see, we all have a propensity towards negativity. Even the most positive person in the world has a propensity towards negativity. But let's define pessimism before we go any further. What is pessimism? How would you define a pessimist? It's awkward when you're all looking at me. And I'm a self-defined... Think, thinking the worst. I, I looked up a, a definition and it said, one who has a tendency to stress the negative or unfavorable or to take the gloomiest possible view. Right, Laura? Somebody you know some, sometimes? All of us, I'm going to make an unequivocal statement, everybody here is a pessimist at times. You might not like that definition, but you are, and we're in good company. I was thinking through the Bible of pessimists. I came up with someone like Gideon. You know the story of Gideon? He said, God tells him he's going to go be a mighty warrior. I'm not a mighty warrior. I'm the wimpiest of the wimpy tribe. I can't even do anything. It's kind of pessimistic. There was this other guy you may have heard of, Moses. God, I can't do anything. I can hardly speak well. Mm, worked out a little differently. There are other people like Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel. Do you know what Nathaniel said? The famous words, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There are lots of pessimists in the Bible. Here's what I find. If I'm not in control of things, I can assume the worst possible outcome will happen. Ever happen to you? If you're not in control of things, you can assume the worst possible outcome will happen. Now, here's how I know that everyone is a pessimist. Does anyone not have trouble trusting God? Does anyone here trust God perfectly? Do you know why you don't trust God perfectly? Yes, because we all have sin. But because we're pessimistic based on our sin, we assume if we trust God, things might go really, really bad. So what we tend to do is pick and choose areas where we're comfortable trusting God, and the areas where we don't want to trust God, we don't trust Him because, oh my gosh, if I did that, it would go horrible. Really? Yeah, like Jacob. Well... Here's a perfect example I came across this week as I was preparing this sermon of pessimism and optimism at play side by side. Now, this is in everyone's favorite book in the Bible. It's in the book of Numbers. I know some of you have memorized the entire book of Numbers. It gets, it gets a lot of reading. Actually, unfortunately, I think people skip through the book of Numbers because they think it's 
back end, it's back-ended by genealogies, front-ended by directions for building a temple. Well, there are actually a lot, of, a lot of great stuff in there. And if you turn to Numbers 13, I'm going to read a section of text here. We're going to get a lot of Bible today because I assume God has better things to say than I do. So the more I read this, the better off we're probably going to be. But in Numbers chapter 13, starting in verse 1, we're going to go through chapter 14, verse 11. Listen to what happened in this story. So the, the Israelites have left Egypt, and they've gone through the wilderness, and they're about to enter into the promised land. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy the la- out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. For each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent from them, so Moses sent from, excuse me, so Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran according to the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the people of Israel. And these were their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, the son of Zakur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, from the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun, from the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu, from the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi, from the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi, from the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali, from the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael, from the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vopsi, from the tribe of Gad, Guel, the son of Maki, these were the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and said to them, Go up into the Negev, and go up into the hill country, and see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage, and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rahab near Lebo Hamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. The place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days they returned from spying out the land and they came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. Now listen to the report. And they told him, We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land, and they had spied that they spied out, saying, The land, though which we have gone to spy it out, 
is a land that devours its inhabitants, and the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. If you were going to go check out the promised land, what would your report have been? Would it have been, let's go, or oh no? You see, ten of these guys were pessimists. They went into the promised land. Did you notice how it started, what God said? God told Moses, send men out to spy the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Okay? He's saying, you got it. Just go look at it. And they freak out. Now, the simple fact of the matter is, knowing myself, if I was one of the guys who went to spy out the land, I don't think I would have been camped with Joshua and Caleb when we came back. I think I would have wanted to be, but I would have seen a lot of obstacles, a lot of possible negative events that could happen. But do you know the difference between an optimist and a pessimist? A pessimist sees obstacles. An optimist sees opportunities. You see, in our lives, we have tests. I believe these guys were sent into the land as a test. We're not tested so God can check up on us. He's not looking at his heavenly ledger. I wonder how Pastor John's doing. We haven't checked in on his faith in a while. Let's give him a test. Ooh, he's got some work to do. Now, God knows our hearts. He knows where we are. We have tests so we can know where we are. You see, we can have days where we think we are so deeply in love with Jesus, we would do anything he told us to. Peter had one of those days. It didn't end so well. For us, that happens too. And Peter had a test so he could learn where he was and make the necessary changes, as God was calling him to, The same thing happens for us. In our lives, God gives us tests. He gives us situations. Sometimes he gives us a UPS truck that rings a doorbell. Other times he puts a tree down on the house while we have a sick kid in the hospital. Other times he calls us to obey him in a difficult circumstance. And what we need to to think about is how we're going to respond to that test. Are we going to trust? Are we going to see it as an opportunity? Or are we going to see it as an obstacle? That's the difference between a pessimist and an optimist. It's all about perspective. Now these 10 scouts who came back with a pessimistic report, these weren't just random guys. These were hand-selected scouts. These were, these were men who knew what they were doing. So it's not like someone like me walking out into the woods and trying to determine if we could live off of the foliage and roots and animals. And How do, how do I know? It's like someone who knows what they're doing going out. Think of, think of a military scout. You know, someone who knows what they're doing. Goes out. 
he looks at the, at the enemy, and he comes back with a report. He says, I got years of experience, guys. This ain't going to go good. They're bigger than we are. They're stronger than we are. They got fortifications that we don't have. They got weaponry we don't have. We're in big trouble. But somebody else went with them. And they're saying, but God told us that this is ours. It doesn't make sense how it's going to happen, but he told us that it's ours. So these are opportunities. Remember what Joshua, or was it Caleb? Someone referred to them as bread, either Joshua or Caleb. You know what that means? It's nourishment. These obstacles are nourishment. The tests we face in our life are nourishment to help us grow in our faith. Now, here's a problem we face. Our pessimism is contagious. If you grew up in a pessimistic home, you could tend to be pessimistic. I can attest. If you hang around pessimistic people, you'll tend to be pessimistic. If you're a pessimistic person with little people that live in your house or big people that work for you or with you or hang out with you, it's contagious. Pessimism breeds pessimism because when the scouts came back and the ten gave the bad report, the people freaked out. And do you see how silly it is what they say? Oh, if we could have just died in Egypt. Oh, if we would have starved in the wilderness. Let's run away and find a different leader. Different than who? Than God. He's going to kill us. Where are you going to go? That's what we say. Oh, God, I can't believe you're calling me to do this. I wish I would have just died when I was a kid. This is so devastating. How am I going to survive? There's a tree that fell down on my roof, but sometimes it gets worse. Sometimes we lose people, and we really don't know how we're going to get through without them. Sometimes we lose things. Sometimes we're in bad situations, and we don't know how we're going to get through. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we going to see what God has to say, or are we going to get pessimistic in a hurry? You and I have a wonderful opportunity to be nourished by the trials in our lives, by the tests in our life, to see them as opportunities, not obstacles. Jacob could identify an obstacle from a million miles away. Joshua could identify an opportunity. Fortunately, we have examples like Joshua and Caleb, who weren't pessimists. There was another guy who the Jews called Yeshua. We call him Jesus. He was not a pessimist, was he? Now, Jesus had pretty good foresight. He knew why he came. He knew what was going to happen. Could you see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Oh, God, why did I ever leave heaven? This is horrible. Nobody really likes me. Now I'm going to get nailed to the cross. I'm going to be, oh, God, why? I didn't read that in the Gospel. Now, an optimist isn't someone who whistles and skips perpetually. That's what I used to think an optimist was. Someone who, like, their car breaks down in the middle of the desert, And they're just like, oh, joy, perhaps there will be an oasis around this bend. See, I grew up in the camp where car breaks down in the desert. We're all going to die in five minutes. Oh, no. An optimist is somewhere in the middle. Oh, no, the car broke down in the desert. I don't know what to do. Better pray. See, Jesus was full of joy, but he didn't whistle and skip all the time. Memory verses, Jesus wept. Remember that one? Optimists can weep. Optimists are more properly defined as realists. Not with my sarcastic definition of a realist that I used to have. But realists are people who know that God is in control, and they are not. And that God will take care of everything perfectly, and they cannot. 
You see, when you look back to what was going on with Jacob, yeah, Benjamin might go and die, but there's nothing Jacob can do about that. But God can. They might um, starve to death. Nothing you can do about making crops grow, but God can. Our job as an optimist is to be obedient to God. God doesn't call us to control. God calls us to obey. Jesus says, if you love me, you will blank my commands. Freak out when you hear my commands. Obey my commands. Our job, if we want to be an optimist, is simply to obey God's commands and to wait and see what he's going to do through it. If you look at all the examples of pessimists in the Bible, you will see a commonality to how it ends. When you go to heaven and you meet past pessimists, recovered, well, they're, they're recovered at that point, you're not recovering, recovered pessimists, they will always tell you, oh man, if only I could have had a proper perspective. If you want to meet a recovering pessimist, you can talk to me after church. But this is how it always turns out. God knows what he's doing. God has it perfectly in control, and it, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay if you trust God. That doesn't mean it's going to play out just how you want. It's going to play out better than you can imagine. Our job is to be willing to trust God, because if you really want to have a pessimistic negative view, oh, don't obey God. You'll get to see a lot of negative stuff happen in your life. But notice this. Jesus talked about two paths. One that leads to heaven, one that does not. The one that does not is wide and smooth. The one that does is narrow and bumpy. You see, those bumps, though, they form us perfectly. Don't get under the misconception that a life of obedience to God is just, is just whistles and skipping and you know watching uh, Disney cartoons. I don't know why I include that. It's not all laughs and chucks and giggles, but it's complete and utter joy. It's preparation for eternity. Jesus also says that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. You know what I'm saying. He's saying that my, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. He walks along with us on that bumpy path. But we need to obey, and when you see a bump, don't see an obstacle, see an opportunity. See, next week we're going to finish up the life of Jacob. And you're going to see that a person can live well optimistically, but you're not a perpetual optimist because you're a sinful, fallen person who's a work in progress. There is no one who's going to leave here today and say, Oh, I'm going to be optimistic now forever. Try it. I bet you don't make it out of the parking lot. But, 20 years from now, you can walk from here to the car and go out the parking lot and still be optimistic. You'll probably make it to the stop sign, to the traffic light. That's the 20-year distance. The question becomes, how do you go from being a pessimist to an optimist? There's no seven-minute help book. There's no vitamin you can take. There's no retreat you can go to. You can't even fake it. It happens like this. When you trust God and you're obedient to God, and you see him keep his word and what it really means to be joyful, you'll try it again. You'll take the little step, and then you'll take the bigger step, and then an even bigger step of obedience. And as you begin to do that, the optimism just oozes because there's nothing to be concerned about. Your client who went to heaven. Death is nothing to fear. The process of dying can be difficult. I'd like to go very, very quickly. I'm excited about where I'm going. But see, there's always a part of us that has a little bit of fear and doubt about the great unknown, no? It's like, 
going to the amusement park and looking at the roller coasters. They're big and they're high and they're scary and oh my, what's going to happen if I get on that? Well, at times, trusting God feels like a roller coaster ride. But after you trust him a few times, you realize it's a whole lot of fun to trust God. And you're missing out on a whole lot by not trusting God. So if you want to be an optimist, the first thing you need to do is make the choice. Because being a pessimist is really easy. You just hang out with people that don't know Jesus, or frankly, a lot of people who do know Jesus, like me sometimes, and you just talk about all the things that can go wrong. You talk about all the negative stuff going on in your life and all the potential negative results that come from it. And it just perpetuates itself. Or, you can be an optimist. And this, these, are, these are two things that you have to do to be an optimist. You ready for these? These are really difficult. The first thing you need to do is you need to change your focus, perspectives. So far I've tied every sermon into that picture. One more to go. A lot of pressure on me next week. It's about perspective. Do you see the obstacles or the opportunities? Now I'm not asking you to tell me the end result or to tell yourself the end result because you can't do it. But as you go through life and stuff doesn't make sense, why guy would you allow this to happen? Maybe you could think of a guy who ended up in prison um, falsely accused. Maybe a guy who was sold into slavery by his brothers. I think we talked about him. When you can't explain what's going to happen, don't worry about it. Trust God. Ask God. Step one. Change your focus as an act of worship to God. We talk about offerings we can give to God. There are a variety of offerings. One of them is with our attitude. God, I'm getting uh, concerned. I'm getting frustrated. I know that's wrong. I don't want to have that attitude. Would you please encourage me through this time? Would you reveal the opportunities that are coming more fully to me because I'm weak and I need that help from you? Oh, he will. And then as you, as you do that, you will see that pessimism is not compatible with a true love of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying if you're a pessimist, you don't love Jesus. I'm saying if you're a pessimist in recovery like me, you don't love Jesus as much as you really could. The second thing you need to do is this. Look at your life and think of the areas where you are not being completely obedient to Jesus. We all have them. Variety of areas. Okay? This is the big step. Resolve to trust Him completely. Because when you're willing to trust God in the areas He has convicted you of completely, then you can get out of the pessimism and into the positivity. Optimism. Because as long as you don't trust Him, you're harboring pessimistic attitudes. And when we let a little bit of sin fester in our lives, it has the ability to grow and expand and touch different areas of our lives. And what happens if anyone's still listening to me now, when you think about obeying God in all areas, you start to get a little bit tensed up in your back. Because there are some areas we don't want to let God touch. I'm in the boat too. Because there are some areas where we like to have control, because if we don't have control, things are going to be going horribly bad. Who do you think convinced us of that? You do those two things, you'll be an optimist till the day you die. But the fact of the matter is you can't do it perfectly like that. But you can start right now. You can start as an act of worship to God. Instead of focusing on the obstacles, view them as opportunities. Look at the areas in your life where God is prompting you, saying, you need to obey me in this area. Obey him. Because as you do that, and you say, all right, God, this makes no sense. This can't play out well then he gets a big smile on his face and says, watch. And you get a big smile on your face because you get to watch. I can tell you, in, in my 
weak, recovering, um, pessimistic view. I have seen God do amazing things in my life that I couldn't explain how it would have happened. And it's like, oh my word, why was I so concerned? Why, God, I'm really sorry. Why was I so concerned? You said you'd take care of it. You took care of it. Why was I so concerned? And then 30 minutes later, hey, Laura, what are we going to do about this? This is going to be a catastrophe. i got to figure out what to do about this. And she just starts smiling at me. Like, John, it's been a whopping half hour. Are, are you done? Like, has it worn off already? It wears off pretty quickly sometimes. But God has never let a person down. God tells us when you read his word to love and obey. And when you love and obey God, you're not going to be a pessimist. How many little kids, two-year-old kids, do you see walking around without a care in the world? Lots of them. How many two-year-old kids do you see walking around holding their mom or their dad's hand? Um, should we really cross the street here? There might be a car hidden behind it. Um, can we afford McDonald's for lunch today? I haven't seen the checkbook. Can we handle this? They, they trust. We're called to trust with a childlike faith. Not an immature faith, but a childlike faith. Jacob was a man who was a pessimist. Ten scouts were men who were pessimists. But fortunately, we had Joshua and Caleb. And watch what happens. Joshua went into the land. And they took the land. But as, they, as, as he trusted and went, he came up to this city called Jericho. And there was some wall problem. There were these walls that had to go down. And God said, march! Now you know what a pessimist says? I'll be marching right back out of this promised land is what I'm going to be doing. But do you know what Joshua did? He marched. He didn't try to explain it. He marched. And the walls came tumbling down. He wouldn't have been able to march if he didn't trust to go in the promised land. We need to trust. We need to step and trust completely. And as we do, the big walls become opportunities that we get to see come tumbling down and tell people about. And people learn from, from God working in and through our lives for generations to come. But we got to march and not run back the other way. Now I'm going to close with prayer. And afterwards we're going to um, take communion as a church family. Communion in our church is for anyone who's accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And as we take communion today, I'd like you to um, spend some time uh, repenting of the, the sin in our life of pessimism in areas where we know we haven't been trusting God and asking God for, for the nourishment and the strength to be able to trust Him fully. Because, folks, you can't be an optimist all on your own. That's a God-inspired work. I, I've said before, what are, what are some things in your life that you wouldn't be able to do if God removed the Holy Spirit? Can I tell you one? Be an optimist. That's a Holy Spirit-type work. And Jesus tells us that this is nourishment to us, spiritual nourishment. This is uh, fueling, up the, fueling up the tank. As we repent of sin, we're more filled by the Holy Spirit. Let's also, as we uh, partake today, look forward to what God will do in our lives, individually, collectively as a church. Start changing those obstacles into opportunities. And just expect that God will keep His word, as He says He will. And be amazed by what He does. After I pray, I invite you all to come forward. A song will play, and after the song I'll close with a benediction. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the examples, both positive and negative. I thank you for the, the scouts who were sent into the promised land. But mostly I thank you for Joshua and Caleb's courage.
I thank you for Jacob, an amazing person in the Bible who used in amazing ways, but who still had some issues. God, I can relate. I think we all can. God, I pray that you would work powerfully in our lives, that you would help us be optimists through your power, not people who just have rose-colored glasses, but people who have biblical lenses and see things for what it really is and can be completely joyful. God, I thank you for the fact that you are patient with us, that you are slow to anger and steadfast in abounding love, because, God, we need patience from you. God, help us to be more like you, more like our Heavenly Father. Help us to be holy as you are holy, as you command us to be. Help us to be courageous enough to take those small steps of obedience so that we can see you are a faithful God who always keeps his word and his promises. And as we take those small steps, God, please nourish us and empower us to take bigger steps and yet bigger steps and help us be people who are not contagious pessimists, but people who have a love for you that spreads. Help us to be a people who are around others and are not influenced by them, but influence them through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We know that's what you tell us in your word. And the implication is we sure can't do a heck of a lot on our own. And we thank you for the fact that you sent your Holy Spirit to live in us when we love Jesus. God, as we take communion as a church family today, I pray that you would use it powerfully to strengthen and nourish us. I pray that you would convict us and encourage us as we speak with you. I pray that you would do a mighty work as we leave here today, that you would grow each and every one of us closer to you and closer to one another, and that we would allow us to use us mightily in the world around who so desperately needs to hear of your love. God, thank you for loving us while we were unlovely. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners. And thank you for the fact that you are working in us and preparing us to spend an eternity of perfection with you in heaven. It's in Jesus' name who dwells there right now that we pray. Amen.